Mark 9, verse 14 says, When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe... All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. So Jesus and Peter, James and John, they've been up on the mountaintop. Elijah and Moses had appeared there talking with Jesus. And they come down from the mountain to where they parted from the other disciples. And there's trouble. This may have been quite a shock to the three who were with him on the mountain. The glory of Jesus was on display to a greater degree than they had yet experienced. They actually heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The disciples may have thought, I'm sure nothing will ever be the same. Everyday problems can no longer intrude on my experience of God's glory. But uh uh-oh, everyday life intervenes. Immediately, they're confronted with the difficulties that daily life can bring. William McDonald said the disciples were not permitted to remain on the mountaintop of glory. In the valley below was groaning, sobbing mankind. A world of need lay at their feet. We may have allegorical experiences that are referred to as mountaintop experiences. You've probably heard that terminology. Maybe you've experienced that. It's an experience of the presence or nearness of God in which we are enormously blessed. Some preachers, I'm sure some non-preachers, but preachers get to talk about it a lot more to people, you know, groups of people. Uh, but some preachers and others have been so blessed by the presence of God, sensing His love and joy, that they have begged God to, to stop. Uh, R.A. Torrey uh, was a guy who ministered with uh, Dwight, or... D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. Um, And he tells of a time uh, when Moody was ministering people, you know, the very successful ministry, people were coming to the Lord. And there were these two women who would pray for Moody. And they'd tell him, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. And one day he asked them, why don't you pray for the people? They said, we're praying for you because you need the power. (laughs) And uh, so Moody... Oh, well, okay. So he started praying in this way. And, and uh, Tory tells it this way. Not long after, one day on his way to England, he was walking up Wall Street in New York. He says, Mr. Moody very seldom told this, and I, am almost, I almost hesitate to tell it. And in the midst of the bustle and hurry of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street. And he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself. And in that room, he stayed alone for hours. And the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand, lest he die on the spot from very joy. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And when he got to London, partly through the prayers of a bedridden saint in Mr. Lessie's church, bedridden saints can pray and have a great power and effect on the world or any kind of 
you know, not being able to get out. It says that when he got to London, the power of God wrought through him mightily in North London and hundreds were added to the churches. And that was what led to his being invited over the wonderful uh, over to the wonderful campaign that followed in later years. So uh, you may have read about, you know, Moody's campaign when he went to England and traveled you know, around the country. Uh, Moody tells this as his own testimony. This is the way he tells it. And uh, he doesn't like to talk about it because he doesn't. He's not interested in exalting himself. He says, One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. And he, he says, It's this guy I knew, you know, who's caught up to the third heaven. And what Paul actually expresses, or what the Greek expresses, is there aren't any words that can really put this, you know, can be put in human language. What I saw, what I experienced. And he says, uh, Moody goes on to say, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love. As Tori uh, expressed it, it was, he was full of joy. And here Moody says, I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. And then Moody goes on and he says, I, you know, I went out. The messages were the same. They were the same sermons, but there were different results because the Spirit of the Lord was moving in, you know, in a different way than there had been. And there are many others who've given the same type of testimony. Uh, they say, God, please stop. I can't take any more of your blessing. I won't be able to endure it. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, Jesus told the apostles there, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So they had this power from God through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of him. In Ephesians 5:18 through 21, we're exhorted, Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We see there are the terminology, we can talk terminology, you know, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's being filled with the Spirit. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Luke calls it the promise of the Father twice and says you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so Paul here is writing, speaking of be filled with the Spirit Again, in the Greek, it's, it's a continuous action. Be being filled. Continually be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. We're going to see this in a couple of contexts as well. This humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves. Over in Luke chapter 11, Jesus speaking in verse 9 says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Here, kid, have a scorpion. If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So we're talking about the filling, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a separate issue from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's power received from God for service. Well, this is not a teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not really in the context here. This is what... You know, Andy would call sidebar. Some people call rabbit trails, but we'll use, we'll use sidebar. You know, <laughs> um, but it's been a while since we spoke about it. I'm not going to do a full full teaching concerning it. We'll wait till we get a context where it is uh, that. But just to remind us that we need to have God's power, and if we're not experiencing that, we need to seek God so that we might be filled with the Spirit. Um, we'll see. And maybe I'll just mention it here and we won't. Well, it's coming up, so. 
If you don't have the power of God's Spirit for service to Him, I would encourage you to seek Him concerning this. Uh, the term's not important again. You can call it whatever you want. But there's no doubt we need the power of God. The anointing of the Holy Spirit upon us if we are to be effective in His service. We must get the leaven out of our house if we are to receive His blessing. And the Lord's looking for hearts fully dedicated to Him. The apostles were filled on the day of Pentecost, you know, in Acts chapter 2. It says, uh, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. A couple of things here we don't read about being repeated in other contexts. One is this rushing mighty wind, you know, this sound of a wind filling the whole house. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. We don't find this repeated, uh, you know, told us that this has happened again anywhere. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see that repeated quite often. Uh, tongues seems to be a, a um, common gift that is bestowed at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not... Uh, you know, it's not always spoken of. We can't say that's the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which some people do teach. Uh, we're, we're told by Paul in speaking about the gifts, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no. But apparently it's a fairly fairly common uh, gift that's given. And then they go on and they begin to speak of the marvelous works of God to all the people that were gathered in Jerusalem because all the people had come there for the feast from all different areas. The Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontuses, I don't know what they are, Asians, you know, people from Pontus, Fergian, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome. So these were... Both uh, Jews and proselytes. So all these people are getting introduced to the church which is being born at this time. But there were times subsequently when uh, the apostles needed to be and once again were filled with the Spirit. We find in Acts chapter 4 where they have been... um, Beaten, they've been warned not to speak about Jesus. They've been beaten, and says in verse 23, being let go, they went to their own companions, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, "Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things?" Psalms 2. The rulers of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ or His anointed. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. If we want to blame somebody, we have to blame Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and and the Jews. That covers everybody. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. He says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. We see them being filled once again, although they had... Uh, the Spirit had come upon them. They had been filled with the Spirit uh, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, speaks about the power then that was still there. We cannot serve Him with any less than the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit upon us, His anointing upon us for service. Now, the indwelling of the Spirit will bring forth fruit of the Spirit. The baptism, the filling of the Spirit will bring power for service. I thought of Moses over in uh, Exodus 33. This is after the golden calf and Moses is back in the presence of the Lord. In verse 12 it says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. You know, at one point, the, uh, God says to them, says to Moses, I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, I'm just going to wipe you all out, you know, because you're, you're stiff-necked, you're rebellious. And so Moses, you know, he'll say, if you're not going, I'm not going. <laughs> so he says, uh, you've not let me know whom you'll send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name and you've found grace in my sight. You've told me these wonderful things. And now, therefore, I pray, if I've found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people, this stiff-necked, rebellious nation. And the Lord says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Just leave us here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. That was an important connection. And Moses then says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is the glory of God, his goodness. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. So Moses requests to see the glory of God, just as these guys experienced on the mountaintop, seeing the glory of Jesus. And God says, he will do that. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll declare my name to you. We find the fulfillment of this in the next chapter, Exodus 34. In verse 4, he's called to back, go back up to the mountains after the original Ten Commandments are broken. The stones are broken at the foot of the mountain. In verse 4, it says, He cut two tablets of stone from the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is what the Lord says. This is my name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. The Lord is His name, Yahweh, but He's going to give a description of His name, all His goodness passing before Him. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I need to be forgiven for all those things. And then He says, but, but by no means clearing the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is a God of justice. He is a holy God, a righteous God. He's made provision for those who will turn to him for forgiveness, but he won't uh, clear those who continue in rebellion, turning against him. And in verse 8, we're told, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So this is Moses' response. He he bows toward the earth. He worships the God, our God. And he said, If now I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our, and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And certainly the, the Lord has done this. It was after this that Moses' face shone with the reflection of God's glory. He had this, you know, literally a mountaintop experience several times with the Lord. And then he had to put the veil over his face, not because the glory was too much for people, but because the glory would fade after he was away from the mountaintop for a while. And so he put the veil over his face so they wouldn't see the glory fading from his face. It's like a, you know, self-preservation kind of thing. You put the veil and you can read about that in... Uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3, about the 
the, the veil is still there in the reading of the law, but the veil is taken away in the Lord Jesus. Well, we don't have any record of the disciples' faces shining with the glory that they had seen. But they are no doubt still feeling the wonder and power of what they've seen and heard. But now it's back to normal, back to the grind, back to the trenches. It is after times of mountaintop experiences with God that we must be particularly on our guard against the attacks of the enemy upon us. We may have a tendency to be complacent about our walk with the Lord at this very time, perhaps thinking that this has somewhat to do with us and we are invincible or invulnerable to spiritual attack. And we can become very complacent in our walk, with, very nonchalant in our walk with the Lord, not really remembering and realizing, hey, we're in a spiritual warfare here, a spiritual battle. We need to be on our guard against the enemy as we'll see in 1 Peter 5. We may feel that we have in some sense arrived spiritually. Oh, I had this experience, Sean. And I'm above any temptation or trial. This is just the time when we should be on our guard. In 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, just reading from verse 1 to get us some context on uh, this humility he's going to talk about. Peter says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter's basically saying, I'm an elder like you guys. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. So there's a submission, a humility that's going on here. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. There's the context of that song we sang earlier. Then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the devil likes to look for opportunities. And when we're thinking maybe that we're standing, we've got to take heed lest we fall. In Luke chapter 4, 13 and 14, after Jesus has endured the temptations in the wilderness, it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's just waiting for another chance to tempt Jesus, to produce some kind of trial that he might be able to trip him up with. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. So what we're seeing here is Jesus and the three arrive back at the disciples and there are problems. There is turmoil. There are arguments going on. The scribes are disputing with the nine disciples. It appears they were being challenged as to why they could not cast out this unclean spirit. But we don't, we don't get the argument of what they're saying, but it could be something like this. You guys follow Jesus, whom you say is so great, and yet you can't do this. Um, commentator Cole comments and says, One wonders why these same scribes, instead of further embarrassing the crestfallen disciples before the crowd, do not set about exercising the demon themselves as a proof of orthodoxy. They're just all about criticizing the disciples who haven't been able to cast that, but they're not casting it out. Well, Jesus is unaffected by coming down from the mountain. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. And so this is not a, 
an issue for him. G. Campbell Morgan says he found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. He silenced the scribes. He comforted the father. He healed the boy. He instructed the disciples. We might think, as, as they, they thought of him in Mark uh, 7.37, we might think he has done all things well. And in this situation, he certainly has. So the people began uh, running. Jesus becomes the center of attention. says the people are greatly amazed when they see him. It reminds me of Israel when Moses was on the mountain with God and they gave up on him coming down, you know, because he was gone 40 days. They said, we don't know what has become of this guy, Moses. And uh, they tell Aaron, make us gods and take us back to Egypt, you know. Well, we don't know how long Jesus was on the mountain. It was not 40 days. <laughs> but the people were amazed to see him. Were the nine disciples also? They were no doubt relieved, if not amazed. And so they start running to him to greet him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Jesus is immediately protective of his disciples, as he should be. They're his sheep. He's their shepherd. So he confronts the scribes. He confronts the agitators. What are you disputing about? Why are you messing with my disciples? They're not your disciples. And then one of the crowd speaks up. The scribes don't answer immediately. So this fellow in the crowd says, um, it's my son. He has a mute spirit. This is what this whole dispute is all about. seems his son is demonized. David Guzik says, in the eyes of contemporary Jewish exorcists, this was a particularly difficult, if not impossible, demon to cast out. This was because they believed that you had to learn a demon's name before you could cast it out. And if a demon made someone mute, you could never learn his name. So, impossible to cast the demon out. We don't find Jesus having a problem. He's, he's got no such limitation. He only asked a demon the name in one situation, that was the demon, demoniac in the Gadarenes. And he asked them this uh, so that other people would understand the real situation. That this is not a demon. This is a multitude of demons. And so Jesus doesn't have a problem uh, with knowing the name. And they're, we're given this description, uh, foaming at the mouth, gnashing teeth, becoming rigid. This is Similar to some a description of some epileptic fits, but it's not epilepsy. Uh, in Matthew, the father says, uh, according to our translations, he's a lunatic, which is not a derogatory term like we use it today uh, because they associate a lot of these things with the moon and the influence of the moon. And so he was influenced by the moon. He was a lunar, lunatic or an epileptic, depending on which translation you look at. Uh, but it's not epilepsy. It's an evil or unclean spirit that seizes him, throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. He stiffens or he has a temporary paralysis. Uh, when I was a child, I had a neighborhood friend who uh, did have epileptic fits. And he would, some of these things would happen. We'd have, you know, if he was with us, we'd have to make sure he wasn't chewing on his tongue or swallowing his tongue, that kind of thing. Um, there could be people who uh, exhibit epileptic symptoms who are actually influenced by a demon like this guy, but not everybody who is, has epilepsy is, you know, there are physical causes for this as well. Someone has said, surely some of whom we diagnose as physically or mentally ill today are actually demon-possessed. And I think there's no doubt that that is true. So the disciples attempted to cast the spirit out, but they were unable to do so. Jesus had previously given the disciples power to cast out unclean spirits, but they were apparently unable in these current circumstances to do so. Is it like Peter walking on the water and then looking at the waves? You know, they've received the uh, ability from Jesus to cast out demons, but then they're confronted with this situation that's so extreme, and Jesus is not anywhere to be found. We don't know. We know part of the reason why, because Jesus will address it. Uh, so Jesus answers the man, but he has the disciples and the crowd in mind. He calls them a faithless generation. I can identify with this statement. 
you know, we used to have a saying, I resemble that statement, which was, you know, from, I resent, people say, I resent that statement. And somebody would say, I resemble that statement. Um, it's not that I don't believe all that the scriptures say about Jesus. I know that the scriptures are God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the very words that God desired to be written, and that all that has been written is for our benefit. But when confronted by this situation, I'm not sure I would be any more successful than the disciples at bringing deliverance and relief to this father and son and to this situation. I stand rebuked. And I cry out with the father of this young man, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus asked the question, how long shall I be with you? And I would answer forever, Lord. That would suffice. Don't ever leave us. But he could not stay forever, or the plan of God could not be carried out. Our redemption would never be obtained. The Holy Spirit would never come to dwell within his followers if Jesus stayed. Uh, John seven thirty seven through 39, he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, where he talks about rivers of living water shall flow from their innermost being. And says he's spoke of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, we know old people and uh, people in the Old Testament, old people in the Old Testament too had had a, you know, they were had the Spirit come upon them, fill them. So what he's speaking of there is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is unique uh, to the church. But the filling, the power of the Holy Spirit, that's something throughout the ages and something that his people always need. And so then he asked, how long shall I bear with you? And we'd say, just a little longer, Lord. Do not give up, up on us. Do not forsake us. He indeed is full of compassion. He is long-suffering toward us. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, but he's dealt with us in his mercy. We read part of one, uh, Psalm 103 uh, Thursday night, but I'd like to read it. Uh, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but this speaks to us of God's uh, attitude toward us, His thoughts toward us. It's the Psalm of David, Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. For He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant. And to those who remember His commandments to do them. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you ministers of His, who do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Another good song. So after these questions of rebuke, pretty strong rebukes, you know, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I be with you? Faithless generation. After these words, what did Jesus do? He says, bring him to me. He acts in compassion for the suffering. Bring him to me. There's a solution to all problems. 
If we can bring someone to Jesus, whatever still may continue, they will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Their need will be answered. As in John 10, where Jesus talks about this, he says, uh, verse 7, Most assuredly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Over in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, you know this passage very well, I'm sure. Starting in verse 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So this relationship between the Father and the Son and Jesus um, being able to reveal the Father. Verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the result of coming to Jesus. Pasture, going in and out. Rest, taking his yoke upon us, him taking our burden upon himself. That's the solution, coming to Jesus. In uh, John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40, um, Jesus is responding to, you know, he said, John gave witness of me, and they were saying, eh. And he said, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me he says, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. There's speaking of faith here. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's the solution. Coming to Jesus. Bring him to me. And if he comes to me, all will be remedied. In John chapter 6, where Jesus is disputing with the people who wanted him to give them bread forever, bread from heaven. In verse 32, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Yeah. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Talking about coming to him again. He who comes to me never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He's defining this coming in spiritual terms. We come to him by believing in him. He said, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Again, in the context of equating coming to him with believing in him. In verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So the one who believes is the one who's coming to Jesus. That's the one that the Father gives to Jesus, is the one who believes in Jesus. And, and you know, this faith aspect of relationship with God, it's, it, that's consistent from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. Uh, God has determined whom He will save and that determination is He who believes. Um, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household, He said to the Philippian jailer. So the fa all that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will no means cast out if somebody's thinking, well... You know, I can come to him, but he might not accept me. Jesus says, no, you come. No no way that I'll turn you aside, cast you out. 
For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he's given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There was a book written years ago. Anybody remember this one? If Jesus is the answer, what are the questions? Anybody remember this? Yeah. I remember that book. The questions can fill the universe, but still, He is the answer. Whatever the question is, He's the answer. And the old song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above Him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. We can't bring someone to Jesus physically anymore, but we can bring them to Him in the Spirit. That is, share the truth of God, the gospel of salvation with them and seek to persuade them to come to him for all good things. In Psalm 84, a psalm of the sons of Korah, verse 1 says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. This is coming to the Lord. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So even the temple had those places where birds could build nests and crags. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. May this be the cry of our hearts. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse 4, God speaking of Israel says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and I fed them. In the midst of this rebuke of faithlessness, we still see shining through the compassion and tender mercy of Jesus. If you haven't come to him, won't you come today to receive all the good that he desires for you? Repent of sin. Surrender yourself wholly into his care. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you, as we read in 1 Peter 5.7. So they bring this boy to Him. He convulses. The Spirit convulses him, and he starts wallowing, foaming at the mouth. This unclean spirit doesn't like what's going on. He's being brought to Jesus in this body. Um, the disciples were no problem for Him. The Spirit, he didn't, they didn't have any power. But this one knows that Jesus has the power to command him. And he resists in the only way that he can by a display of his pitiful powers. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. Again, we see the compassion of Jesus. He's not immune to the suffering of humanity. Rather, his desire is to alleviate our suffering. And he tells him, you know, it's often thrown him into the fire, into the water. The, the man says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. That's not a great statement of faith. The man has the wrong if. According to Guzik, the if wasn't in regard to what Jesus could do. The if was in regard to the man's faith. The man has seen the power of this spirit for many years. He is overwhelmed by it, likely awestruck by the raw power to which his son has no defense. I don't know if we can know the desperation of those who have loved ones demonized 
and the fear and depression that accompanies the continual episodes of demonic havoc being wrought upon their loved one. And this man is not as sure about the power of Jesus. He's no doubt heard about Jesus, but are the rumors true? Can he really help? He sees the problem, and it looms largely in his consciousness. And we often err in having our eyes focused upon the problem, upon the difficulty, rather than upon the power of God. To us, the problem fills our vision. There's no room for anything else. We can't see past the problem, beyond the enormity of the difficulty in our minds, to the power of God in comparison. The difficulty of the problem can only be assessed in light of the ability of the agent to do the work. That's a loose quote of Chuck Smith. What is difficult for me presents no difficulty to God. What is impossible for me is not impossible for God. It's not even difficult for God. Jesus says to the man, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The understanding of this verse depends somewhat on the punctuation. And we do not have punctuation in the Greek manuscript, so we must assess it based on context and the character or the person of Jesus. Some read this as a question, a flabbergasted Jesus asks, if you can, or an exclamation point, followed by believe. That is, believe I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Or uh, it can be read straightforwardly as it's rendered in the New King James Version here. If If you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I think the context, including the Father's response, supports the straightforward rendering, but either is possible grammatically. Why are all things possible to him or her who believes? Because all things are possible with God. It's not what I can do any longer. It's what can God do. And so the possibilities are limitless. Over in Jeremiah 13 or 32, verse 13, 13 through 17. In this chapter, earlier in this chapter, Jeremiah has, the Lord speaks to him and he says, so-and-so, your cousin, I don't know if his name's in this part of it, but he says he's going to come to you and he's got a deed. He wants you to buy this property. And the Lord tells him, go ahead and buy it. Uh, but Jeremiah's been prophesying. Everybody's going to be carried away to Babylon. going to be there 70 years, you know. And so Jeremiah's a little, you want me to buy property that's, you know, going to be in the hands of the Babylonians? What, how does this make sense? So he had the right to redeem this property. It was the the law of redemption that's found in the Old Testament. And so he goes ahead and the guy comes to him and he says, well, then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. <laughs> because, you know, he, he didn't have any idea. And then what the Lord told him was going to happen, happened. And he said, then I knew that, that this was of the Lord. And in verse 13, he says, I charged Baruch before them saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed and this deed, which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And so this is a confirmation of the word of the Lord that you're going to be taken away from the land, but you're going to come back. And things are going to be built again, and vineyards are going to happen again, and so forth. He says, Now when I delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Uh, Later in the same chapter, verses 25 through 27, once again, Jeremiah says, You have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? In Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 37, uh, Mary says to the angel, because he just told her, you know, she's going to bear the Messiah. 
And she says, How can this be, since I do not have not known a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. This is a little bit different than you know being baptized in the Spirit. This was something else. That the, but the Holy Spirit was coming upon her for this purpose. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is how now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. So he encourages Mary's faith by citing the fact that Elizabeth, who is beyond childbearing age, is now with child with John the Baptist as it happens. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 27, uh, Jesus has been telling the disciples that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to put a camel through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've heard uh, Gail Irwin talk about this passage, but he says it is possible to put the camel through the eye of a needle, but you just have to grind it up really fine. You know, and they try to say, well, there's this little door in the wall of the city and you get the camel down. You can get it through there. you got to unload all this baggage and, you know, but it can go through. You know, uh, when Luke cites this um, situation, he talks about a surgical needle. So that clears it up. It's not, you know, a needle by the gate door of the city. And so the, the apostles, are, they're flabbergasted. Like, well, who can be saved, you know? Because riches were a sign of God's favor, God's blessing in their understanding and their minds. And Jesus looked at them, verse 27 of Mark 10, and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. It's not impossible for rich people to get into heaven, you know? Uh, it can be difficult because he said it's hard for anyone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you may have riches, but you can't trust in them if you're going to be there. And we know that there were rich people who became believers. Paul writes to them in First Timothy chapter 6 about how they should behave. And we know uh, Joseph of Arimathea was likely a wealthy man because he had this new tomb built in Jerusalem and so forth. So you know, it won't necessarily keep you out, but, but they were surprised and Jesus said everything's possible with God. And then in Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15, um, God has spoken to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son and going to be by through Sarah. In verse 10 of Genesis 18, it says, He said, I will certainly, this is the Lord speaking, I'll certainly return to you according to the time of life. This is the Lord speaking, and he has appeared to them, you know, these three men who had come to visit him. So Abraham is right there before the Lord. And he says, Behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. He didn't. He didn't destroy her, you know. He's just like, don't lie, Sarah. You know you laughed. You laughed within yourself. And the Lord knows what all those things that happen within ourselves, right? So it doesn't matter the situation. It's not your ability that's in question, but God's ability. Your faith is involved, believing, trusting God. What are you trusting God for? For what's impossible for you, not what's impossible for Him. But so often that whatever the situation is, it just kind of takes over our mind. You know, we're not able to see beyond that. We're not able to see the power of God. Well, if you can do something, then do it. But if you're not able to do something, then look to someone who can and request help. Once again, it comes back to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so uh, this faith is what makes all these things possible. So 
The man now says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I agree with this. Help my unbelief. Strength, that is, strengthen my faith. That's what he's saying. It is our responsibility to believe God. This has been the case with man since the fall. Adam fell through unbelief. And since that day, God has been looking for those who will trust in him. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that uh, he's speaking to a king who has acted foolishly. He says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you've done foolishly. Therefore, from now on you shall have wars. He looked to someone else other than the Lord. Luke 17, verses 1 through 6. Another situation uh, similar to this statement about the hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to the disciples in Luke 17:1, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. He were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to him, Lord, said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is just too much for them to, to believe, you know, seven times in one day. And you want us to forgive him? You, you got to give us more faith. You know, we just we can't handle this. And, but the Lord says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. We find a similar statement in regard to the mountain. So, increase our faith. Yet, they are reminded that it's not the amount of their faith, but the exercise of their little faith in the correct object that matters. Faith in God and in His given Word, which is entirely reliable in every way. I ran across something else by R.A. Torrey. Uh, he quotes 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And he says, The longer one is a Christian, the easier it becomes to forget what it felt like to be without God. And I think that's true. But many are without the blessings and benefits of His presence in their life. When they need knowledge, guidance, counsel, or hope, they often have nowhere to turn to except the world. And while there is helpful information available, none of it bears the trustworthiness of the words of God Himself. And much of it's deceptive. He recommends reading Psalm 1, 1 through 3, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. He says, such is the Christian's blessing to the recipient of the Scriptures. This book contains the inspired record of God's revelation of Himself to man. It gives answers to the questions that mankind has asked over the ages, a timeless source of wisdom and guidance. As Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, Scripture is useful for teaching, separating us from sin, correcting our path, and training us in godliness and righteousness. Where except the Bible is such wisdom to be found in the world? Thank God today for the blessing of His Word in your life and renew your commitment to meditating on it day and night. He says, Truly wise is he who always believes the Bible against the opinion of any man. So true. Spurgeon comments, Help my unbelief is something a man can only say by faith. While men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. So the crowd starts running together as Jesus is discussing this. He recognizes that the nature of the Spirit uh, delays no longer as the crowd begins to come. And so he casts the Spirit out of the young man. But as it's going, it leaves a final calling card and rips him once more so that he appears to be dead. Some 
think that he is dead. Some of the people here thought that he was dead. Some think, you know, Jesus raised him from the dead. Doesn't say that. Uh, but so much so, he appears to be dead. Uh, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up as he often lifts us up uh, figuratively. So Jesus touches him, raises him up, and he rises. So that's the story of this demon-possessed boy. Jesus points out, you know, his father came and said he's mute. Uh, Jesus says deaf and dumb spirit. So there was both things going on. Maybe uh, maybe he didn't know he's deaf because he never spoke. You know, didn't didn't realize. But it was a deaf and dumb spirit. What a deliverance, you know. He says from childhood this has been happening. We don't know how old the boy is, but from childhood it would indicate that he's at least a little bit older than a small child probably, either in teens or even, you know, 20s, older than that. 